presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the third in our series that I've entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And today we'll be considering the God's servant Moses and talking about uh, some of his prayers of intercession. We've already looked at the Lord's Prayer in our first study. And uh, in our second study, we looked at uh, some of the prayers of Job. And we saw Job in a very stressful situation and, uh, and how he prayed there. And certainly today we're going to see uh, Moses in some stressful situations as well. Just by way of introduction, oh, and by the way, you should have, uh, you should have not only an outline, but you should also have a map. Now, the outline is original uh, with me. The map is not. Uh, in fact, I have put the... Uh, uh, the source of the map there on the map itself, and it is used by permission. I I have purchased uh, the right to do that. Okay, back to our back to our study. Um, when we look at the life of Moses, uh, he lived to be 120 years old, and his life is divided into essentially three equal parts. The first 40 years, he was a prince in Egypt. The second 40 years, he was a shepherd in the Midian desert. And then the third 40 years, he was uh, God's chosen leader uh, for the people, uh, for the Hebrew people, in primarily in the wilderness. Of course, Moses is the one who led them out of the uh, of the land of Egypt, uh, what we call the Exodus. He did not lead them into the promised land. And it's interesting that we see that. Uh, at least we see it intimated in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, where God's purpose for Moses is stated. Now, Exodus 3 is that uh, the situation is that uh, Moses was still uh, shepherding, for, uh, shepherding sheep there in the Midian desert. And he saw this uh, extraordinary thing, the, the bush that was burning but didn't burn up. And he went to investigate it, which shouldn't surprise us because certainly Moses would have had uh, a scientific mind. Remember those first 40 years, um, he was a prince in Egypt. So he would have certainly had the best education and he would have been exposed to all of that. So he certainly would have been the kind of person who had an inquiring mind. But... In the course of, uh, of that encounter with God there at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, in verse 10, God says to Moses this, and I put it in your notes, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And notice he doesn't say anything about bringing them in to the land of Canaan. And of course he didn't. That, was, uh, that turned out to be the responsibility of, uh, of Joshua. What we want to look at today, though, is we want to look at a couple of incidents that take place. Uh, in fact, both of them take place at a little spot called Kadesh Barnea. If you look uh, on that map that you have, you'll notice that it is uh, south and just slightly west of, uh, of the little southern town of Beersheba, which is down close to the, uh, close to the Dead Sea. So... Remember that they came just by again by way of background. 
when Moses led the children of Israel out of, uh, of Egypt, uh, they made their way down to Mount Sinai and they spent some time there because that's where they received uh, Moses in the top of the mountain, you'll recall, received the Ten Commandments and the Civil Law. He also received the pattern for the tabernacle. And then, of course, they had to construct the tabernacle. Uh, there was gold to be, uh, to be refined and to be uh, hammered into various shapes and into certain configurations so that it could be used for lamp stands and things like that. There was other gold that was to be poured. So there was a, and, and a lot of uh, building uh, because of the construction of the tabernacle. So all that's going on. And that, uh, <clears throat> by the time you get to uh, what we're going to be looking at today in Numbers chapter 14, approximately two years have passed, and a lot of that time was spent down in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula uh, where all of this, uh, con uh, the receiving of the law and the construction of the tabernacle was going on. During this time, the people of Israel have been sort of murmuring and complaining uh, just all along, and Moses has been interceding for them. In fact, there's an illustration of that in the left-hand column of your notes in Numbers chapter 11. It says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So Moses has begun to be, uh, at least in those first couple of years, has begun to be an intercessor for these people. And of course, he was the mediator between uh, God and, uh, and God's people at that point. When we, uh, when we get to Numbers chapter 14, uh, this is the time... Uh, well, I'm about to jump ahead of myself... Let's look, uh, let's look at the preparation to take possession of, uh, of Canaan. Remember that the, uh, the, the tabernacle's been constructed, the, the, the Ten Commandments have been given, and now the people make their way back up under the leadership of Moses up to Kadesh Barnea. And what they're going to do now is God tells them, He says, look, I want you to take a... a, a chief man from each one of the ten from each one of the twelve tribes and I want you to send them up into the land of Canaan and that's what they did in fact they went up there and spied out the land of Canaan for some 40 days and uh, let, let's just read about that it says the Lord uh, this is from numbers 13 the Lord spoke to Moses saying send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I'm giving to the people of Israel from each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man every one a chief among them now suppose I were to ask you who who were those people who were those 12 men who went most of you could name two of them <clears throat> and the two that you would name would be Joshua and Caleb. But I would almost bet you that not a soul could name the other ten. Not even one of the other ten. And, uh, there might be an exception here and there, but more than likely that's, uh, that's the case. Now, they went up into the land, they spied out the land, they came back after 40 days to give their report to, the, uh, to Moses, 
and to the uh, children of Israel who were obviously really excited about the possibility about what lay ahead of them as they left Kadesh Barnea to go into the, uh, to the land of Canaan that God had been promising for so many years. But uh, and incidentally, uh, one of the things that they brought back, they they were some of them were carrying long poles between two guys, and they had just big, huge clumps of fruit uh, hanging on those poles, just to show the people, look, here's what's in the land. It is a, indeed a land that is just burgeoning with all kinds of uh, of uh, produce, and it's it's just a great place, as the Lord had said. But what happened when they got back is that uh, there were two of them, the ones we mentioned, Caleb and Joshua, who gave a, uh, a good report about the land and said, let's go take it. But the other ten gave a bad report. And so we see that uh, talked about in, uh, again in Numbers chapter 13 beginning at verse 27. And it says, And they told him, that is, they told Moses, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And I'm sure they pointed to those poles that had all that fruit hanging on them. So, just exactly as God had said it was going to be. However, now anytime you see the however, you know something bad's about to happen. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Now God said, never said that they weren't. But God said, I'm going to give them to you. It doesn't matter how big they are. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, those are the giants. Those are the guys kind of like Goliath that were, that were so tall. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they, that is the ten, brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. Now again, that's a reference to these, some of these giants. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So the recon reports are given. There's a majority report, which is a report essentially of unbelief, and a minority report of two men who says, yes, by all means, we can do it. God will, has given it to us. Let's go take it. Uh, and I think there's an immediate application that just because the majority is in favor of something or is against something, it doesn't mean that the majority is right. In this case, uh, they certainly were not. What The person that's right is the one who is living by faith, and that's what Joshua and Caleb uh, certainly were doing. Well, that brings us to this passage in Numbers chapter 14 uh, where we... Uh, where we see Moses interceding for the people. All right, so notice there's a, there's a rejection of, uh, of God's promise uh, by these people. And uh, we're going to see them reject God's chosen leader. And we're going to see a resurgence of God's anger. And, uh, and then we're going to see Moses intercede. So let's just read through this passage in Numbers chapter 14. It says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, already we have a question about a word here, and that's all. 
all the people were not grumbling. Joshua and Caleb were not grumbling. When you read the Bible and you read words like this, uh, all, all the people, all can mean several things. It can mean all without exception, that is everybody. Certainly that's not what it means here because Joshua and Caleb weren't murmuring and complaining against Moses. Uh, Sometimes the word all can mean all without distinction, that is all types of people. It could be rich people and poor people. Uh, Remember uh, when John in the New Testament, when John the baptizer would go out to preach, it said all of Judea went out to hear him. Well, now does that mean that if you went back to any of the cities in the province of Judea, that every one of them every one of the shops would be closed and every house would be empty because everybody all throughout Judea, there was not a soul left. They were all down at the creek bank listening to John the baptizer preach. Of course it doesn't mean that. But it means, in that case, it means when it says all went out to hear him, it was all without distinction. There were young people and old people. There were rich people and poor people. There were uh, religious people and uh, non-religious people. So, and, and also the word all can certainly be used in, in, in a form of hyperbole, and that's probably what it, what it is here. All the people of Israel, that is, you know, you just look around you and it looks like everybody's complaining. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is they already have a leader, and the leader that they have is one that's been chosen by God, and... He has been, and his choosing by God has been attested to by a number of miracles, and the uh, and the people of Israel uh, have previously acknowledged that. If if they were on a ship somewhere, this is what you'd call mutiny. And the Lord said to Moses, "How long will this people despise me?" Now remember, the the word "despise" means to take lightly. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't don't take it lightly. Don't account it as nothing. Uh, how long will this people despise me? How long will they take me lightly? How long will they refuse to take what I have to say seriously? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And think about all the signs. Now this is, this is uh, two years after the Exodus. They, they've got memories of e- Egypt being turned into an ecological and agricultural disaster area. They've got memories of uh, Pharaoh's army being drowned in the Red Sea. Uh, they still presently have a uh, a cloud during the daytime and a pillar and uh, you know the pillar of fire to keep them warm in the desert at night. Uh, and God has been providing for them. He's He's giving them manna. He's uh, every day, well, at least six days a week. On the Fridays, they were to collect for two days because they weren't collect any on uh, on Sabbath, on Saturday, um, and uh, God had provided water out of a rock. Remember, Moses had God had told Moses to strike the rock, and the rock would would bring forth water. And can you imagine the amount of water that God was providing for these people? You got what two two and a half million people. 
how much water would it take for them for every day, plus all of their livestock? So this is uh, God's just done some tremendous things, and God says uh, exactly that. He says, uh, you know, uh, he goes on to say, uh, but Moses, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm about to skip a verse. In verse 12, God says, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, was this a test for Moses? Perhaps it was. Remember, God uh, often sends tests our way. He sends trials our way. God never tempts us to do evil because God can't be tempted with evil and He doesn't tempt other people to do evil. But what does James say about where temptation comes from? Well, remember, and we talked about this uh, two sessions ago when we were talking about the Lord's Prayer and that that phrase, uh, lead us but lead us not into temptation. And that is when the trials come our way, uh, is there something inside of us? Is there some sort of lust or desire inside of us that's related to that test that that test becomes a temptation for us? Uh, And apparently it was, uh, in this case, it was uh, certainly not for Moses because notice what Moses does. Uh, He begins to immediately, as he's done previously, Uh, to intercede for these people in verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, and notice Moses' argument. Well, maybe argument's not the right word, but as he intercedes, notice the points that he makes. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they'll tell the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give to them that He's killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. So first of all, Moses said, Lord, your reputation is at stake. If you, In interceding for these people, he, he reminds the Lord, your reputation is at stake. If you kill these people, what are all these pagan nations going to say? They're going to say, well, it's just because the Lord couldn't hack it. Uh, the Lord of the Hebrews couldn't get it done, and so He just killed them all in the wilderness. But he goes on to say, He says uh, in verse 17, And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now notice he refers to a promise of forgiveness. Remember when Moses was up in the mount, one of the things that God did was he put Moses in a, a little cleft in the rock. Moses wanted to see God face to face. And God said, you can't see my face and live. So he put him in a cleft of the rock and God said, I'm going to pass by and you'll see my backside as I, as I pass by. And of course, that's what God did. And as he passed by, this is part of what God had to say is what Moses is quoting to God right here, which is another good thing for us to remember, and that is one of the great things we can do when we pray, uh, particularly in intercession, is to pray the promises of God. What has God promised that He's going to do? Now, God doesn't always tell us when He's going to do things, but He will very often make promises, and we can... Uh, 
you know, a lot of times there are uh, conditions that go along with those promises. If we meet the conditions, then we can expect God to uh, uh, to uh, answer that prayer in an affirmative way. Now, again, we don't make demands on God because we're not the master, we're the servant. But... Uh, that's what Moses is doing right here. Uh, one other thing about this particular part, and this troubles some people, it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, some people read that and they say, well, that, that doesn't seem fair. It's, it's like, uh, like what's happening is, is you're going to hold my, my grandson responsible for what I did. Or what my grandson does, uh, you know, is going to have ramifications for his grandchildren one of these days. Well, there are three important words, and you might want to jot this down. There are three important words uh, to distinguish among. First word is sin. And to sin, sin, to sin is a sort of a general word, and it means to miss the mark. Uh, for example, if we uh, if we s- set up a, a we got our bows and arrows out, and we set up a target uh, about 15 miles from here, and then you and I stood out here just outside this door, and we all shot our arrows at that target that's 15 miles away. Some of our arrows would go farther than others. They would obviously go different distances based on things about the bow, but also based on things about our arm strength and being able to, uh, you know, pull the pull the bowstring back. They would go in different distances, but would any of those arrows find that target 15 miles away? And the answer is no. And to sin is to fall short. And uh, so it's, it's sort of a general word. Now there's a second word, and that's the word transgression. And transgression, trans, across, uh, to transgress is to step across a known line. God has drawn a line, and He says, this is sin over here. Don't do this. And so we step up to the line. You know, we, we tend to want to get as close to the line as we can and still be okay. But sometimes what we do is we step across the line. We know better, but we step across the line. Sometimes we sin, we don't realize that we're sinning. You know, we, we may be well-intentioned or we may, you know, some things that we're saying may just go a little bit too far and all of a sudden we're into it as we should not be. But the thing about it is, is with a transgression, we step across a known line. And then there's that third word, which is iniquity. And the word iniquity means crooked or bent. And it has the idea of there is within us a nature that is bent, it is crooked, it tends to move away from God. And that's what he's talking about here, is that this iniquity of the fathers, the bent of the fathers, the crookedness of the fathers, will be visited on the children uh, to the third and fourth generation. What is it about our children that drive us the nuttiest? It's the things that we see our children say and do that reminds us so much of the things that we dislike about ourselves. Now, how have, where, where in the world did they learn those things? Well, they learned them by watching us. And so this is a warning also to us that we need to model the right kind of behavior because our children and our grandchildren are watching. We need to model faith-based behavior. 
Alright, so he goes on. So this bent, this crookedness is passed on. It's, it's kind of like spiritual DNA. And in verse 19, he concludes his intercession by saying, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Notice, he intercedes on the basis of God's past dealings with these people. He said, look, they've been doing this for the last two years. You know, it's not pleasant. It certainly doesn't excuse what they're doing right now. And certainly they're... they're talking about mutiny is a terrible, terrible thing. But he says, but the Lord, you've been, you've been forgiving all of this time. We've, we've never deserved your grace. I mean, that's what grace means. It's undeserved favor. But you've been merciful to us. Please be merciful at this time. And God did forgive. Uh, the, uh, the results, uh, if you look at uh, in, in your notes in the left-hand column, under Roman numeral 2, part E, uh, part God did forgive, but God did not eliminate the consequences of their sin. And that's an important thing to remember. That some people think that, that when God forgives, it means we're not going to have to deal with any consequences at all. No. God, when God forgives us, He, he eliminates the penalty of our sin. He also separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. He refuses to call that to remembrance again. When God has forgiven something, you know, one day when we stand before Him at the resurrection, He's not going to say, well, you know, Bradshaw, remember when you did so and so and so? No, that's forgiven. Your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. But God is a wise Father. And God knows that if He eliminates consequences, that what we will learn in these bodies that are habituated to sin is that, well, if we can do this and come to God and say, please forgive me, and He forgives us, but there aren't any sort of negative ramifications from that, that uh, we'll just do that more and more and more. What's that old saying? It's, a, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is sometimes to ask permission. That's, that's despicable. What happens is God pronounces essentially what is a 38-year sentence on these people. He says, okay. He says, everybody that's 20 years old and upward, He says, you said we couldn't, you couldn't do it. He said, I'm going to tell you what, all of you are going to die in the desert. And everybody who's younger than 20 years old, the ones that you said were going to be prey for the people of the land of Canaan, they're going to go in and they're going to take the land. Well, this really ticks the people off again. They say, oh no, we, we've changed our mind. We, we will go in. And God says, oh no, you're not going to go in. He says, oh, yeah, we will. We'll show you. And they head up toward Canaan and uh, some, some of the residents of Canaan come out and, and put a whipping on them. And they come back and they finally set out from Kadesh Barnea. And they begin to wander in the wilderness. And for the next 38 years, there are tens of thousands of burials where people, all those people who did not believe died in the desert. Now, during that time, God provided manna. He provided for all their needs. The Bible says their sandals didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. God provided everything they need needed. But they did not enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. Now, 
There's another crisis at Kadesh Barnea that comes up. Now we, we move ahead 38 years. And uh, so now the time is approximately 40 years after the Exodus. They've been wandering in the desert for some 37 to 38 years while all this generation has been dying off. And in Numbers chapter 20, uh, Moses' sister dies. It says, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, come in, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. So they're back at Kadesh Barnea. And Miriam died there and was buried there. And, you know, she was uh, Moses' older sister. She was the one who stood by when the little baby Moses was was put in the the waterproof container and uh, placed among the reeds for Pharaoh's uh, daughter to find. And uh, when the little baby was taken out, uh, Miriam ran up and said, Oh, I see you've got a little baby. Wouldn't you like for me to find you a, a wet nurse for that baby? And of course, Miriam went and got her mom. And her mom got to nurse her own baby and also got paid for doing so, even though everybody else uh, was supposed to throw their babies uh, in, the, in the Nile River. So there's a, a, a lot of stuff, I'm sure, going on in Moses' mind at this, at this point. But uh, let's press on. Verse 2. Now, there was no water for the congregation. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. And these folks, you know, God's always provided. But it says, There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought this assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Now notice, back in Numbers chapter 14 that we read just a few minutes ago, it was why the complaint was, Why has the Lord brought us into this wilderness? This time, this next generation is Moses, Why have you brought? the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Well, they're right. The desert is not a place where you find vines and pomegranates and uh, those kinds and grapes and things like that. That was up in the, in the promised land, and that's, that's where they're headed right now. Well, can you imagine, you know, after all this time, if, if I were in Moses' sandals, I would, be, uh, I would be just about beside myself listening to this stuff all the time, saying, what is the matter with you people? But anyway, verse 6 says, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember, the tent of meeting is the tabernacle that's been constructed. And they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Alright, now, what's the plan? What is God's plan? The, the, what, uh, as you look at this, what's, uh, what's the problem? Well, there's a... There, the problem for them is that there's a lack of water, but there's also a problem with selective memory because they have forgotten God's previous uh, provision. They have also forgotten, apparently, God's previous judgment for murmuring and complaining, which is what they're doing at this point. And this is the newer generation. So Moses, Moses goes to the 
tent of meeting there he's to petition the Lord what am I to do in this situation right here and God tells him what the plan is he says take your staff now there's you know staff is just a symbol of authority he says take your staff and you go out there you and Aaron go and you stand in front of the congregation and you stand in front of this rock and you tell this rock to bring forth water Now notice he was not to strike the rock don't beat on the rock. Just talk to the rock and it'll bring forth water. Well, what does Moses do? It says, uh, And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, and notice what a gentle spirit Moses has right now. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. <clears throat> now, what's the problem? A lot of people say, well, Moses struck the rock twice. No, that's not the problem. The problem is that he struck it at all. And there's also another problem, because God didn't tell him to strike the rock once or twice. He didn't, he, he didn't say anything about striking the rock. What did he tell him to do? That's right, he told him to speak to the rock. But the other thing that's the problem is notice the pronoun in, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 10. Hear now you rebels. Now that, it, that doesn't sound like he's interceding for them. But anyway, hear now you rebels. He's just, he's aggravated, he's frustrated, and we understand why. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, who is the we? Moses is including himself, obviously. So who, who's the... You've got to have more than one to have we. Is he, is he talking about Aaron? Is he even including God in all of this? So what has Moses done? Moses has taken God's glory. He's essentially saying, and, and are we going to have to supply water for you again? Well, let me tell you. God doesn't share His glory with anybody, including Moses. But notice what God does, the, the immediate result. After, even though He'd struck the rock, it says, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. Notice, that's God's gracious response right there. That God's going to provide for His people even though the leader has done the wrong thing. But then, let's get to verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. There's God's discipline. You say, whoa, that's pretty stiff. Uh, you don't get to go in the land for, for whacking on a rock? No. The problem wasn't beating on a rock. The problem was stealing God's glory. You say, well, but that's, that's, this seems like almost such an insignificant thing. But remember, Moses has been in the presence of God. He's the one who received the Ten Commandments. He's the one who saw the backside of God. And what does the Bible say? It says in Luke 12, to whom much is given much also is required. The greater the privileges that we have, 
the greater our responsibilities, and we and we see that right here. Uh, later on, uh, it tells us in verse 22 of that same passage, and they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, uh, <clears throat> the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor, and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. And you could add the word if you wanted words if you wanted to according to God's word. Now, meanwhile. Now what's happened is they, they now have left Kadesh Barnea for the final time. And uh, again, if you're looking at your map, as they leave Kadesh Barnea, they're going to travel uh, in a northeasterly direction and they move over to this area um, to, the, to the east side of the Dead Sea. On your map it's called the Salt Sea. Um, where just below where Mount Nebo is. That's, uh, that's the area known as Moab. And it's in that area where the congregation is gathered together that, uh, that the book of Deuteronomy takes place. Deuteros, second, Namas, law. The second giving of the law. And Moses just rehearses all the things that they've been through and then Moses himself goes up into the mountain and Moses uh, dies without... Uh, being able to go into the promised land himself. Notice, if you will, uh, in the left-hand column of your notes on that uh, uh, second page, uh, related to God's response uh, to Moses' petition, the passage from 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. And again, you just see the graciousness and the mercy of God and giving the people and in, in providing for the folks what they needed, uh, even though uh, even though they uh, uh, the leadership had had been so wrong, and then look at the passage just under that Deuteronomy chapter three. Uh, this is as Moses is beginning to talk about all of the things that has gone on and what they can expect. And Moses says this, he says, I, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servants your greatness. Notice, when Moses begins his prayers to the Lord, it, he, he talks about the Lord's greatness. That, should, again, should remind us of the Lord's prayer. How does it begin? Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. And we talk about the hallowing of God's name, the setting apart of God's name. Why? Because He is, he is God from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me, and because of you... I, I'm sorry, let me read that again. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. I, I'm not so sure... I, Moses may be trying to do a little blame shifting right here. I think the reason that the Lord was angry was because Moses had taken, tried to take God's glory. It says, And the Lord wouldn't listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Don't speak to me of this matter again. And I'm sure Moses didn't. Again, the, the application is, To whom much is given, much also is required. Well, in the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says uh, in Deuteronomy 34, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. 
Moses, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him. Who buried him? God buried him. Can you imagine God as your undertaker? And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Well, did Moses ever get into the land? Well, if you read Luke chapter 9 and you read about the transfiguration, you remember Jesus went up to the top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and He was transfigured before them. All of a sudden, the glory just it was so intense that it began to even show through His garments that He was wearing. And then all of a sudden, there were two other people up there with Him. Remember, there was Elijah, but there was also somebody else. Who was it? It was Moses. And so Moses finally did uh, get into the land, uh, didn't he? Uh, and we've got just a few minutes left. Let's look a little, a little bit at Psalm 90, which is a prayer of Moses. It's, uh, Psalm 90 is the oldest of the Psalms in all, in all the Psalter. Uh, it breaks down into three major parts. Uh, if you'll re again recall our first study where we talked about the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication or petition. So the first uh, six verses are basically adoration. The verses 7 through 11 are confession. Uh, they have to do with the confession of sin and the wrath of God. And then uh, the rest of the passage from verse 12 on has to do with petitions or supplication. And, uh, and incidentally, Psalm 90 is the basis for Isaac Watts' great hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. Um, and, let, and let me... Uh, say one word. Now this won't be on the test, and I'm just I'm just going to step up on my soapbox for just a second, and then I'm going to get back down off the soapbox. One of the great disservices that we are doing to the next to our own generation and to the next generation is we are getting away from these great old hymns of the faith. One of the ways that we learn things is our. Uh, uh, is related to music. How did you learn your ABCs? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and many of us, when we start looking through some sort of uh, lateral file, looking for something, we find ourselves almost humming that as we are going through it, looking for the looking for the right file. Well, we learn things uh, musically, and they stick with us that way. Uh, and we can learn tremendous theology from some of these old hymns. Now, I, some of the new praise songs are great, and and I'm and I'm glad that we have them. But many of the praise, many, not all, but many of the praise songs that we have now are what I call 7-Eleven songs. They've got about seven words in them, and you sing them eleven times. And there's really no theology, no greatness of God. It's just praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Well, of course we need to praise the Lord, and I'm certainly in favor of all of that. But the truth is, is that well, let me just just listen to this. This is just a couple of stanzas from Isaac Watts' hymn, and and again, this is based on Psalm 90, uh, stanza three of Isaac Watts' hymn, "O God, Our Help in Ages Past." Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting Thou art God, to endless years the same. 
a thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its suns away. They fly, forgotten as a dream, dies at the opening day. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be Thou our guide while life shall last and our eternal home. Do you see the theology in that? There's, there's, there's reference to eternal life and resurrection and a dependence upon God and the greatness of God and the, the diminishing of man because of his sin and in contrast to the greatness of God. Just marvelous things. Well, let's look at Psalm 90. We've just got just a few minutes here. And again, you'll, from what I just read from Isaac Watts' hymn, you'll, you'll see where he got the idea here in Psalm 90. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Notice he's talking about the greatness of God and the stability and the eternality of God. But then he contrasts it with the weakness of man and the brevity of, life, of man's life. He says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Notice he's talking about we, you and I have an inescapable death sentence on us because of our sin. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night was four hours. So this, you know, God lives in eternity. We live in time and space. There's just there's no comparison. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. It's this world for us is so brief. It's like you know when you wake up in the morning, you've had a dream, and for just a minute you remember a little part of it, but then all of a sudden it's just gone and you can't remember it anymore. So that's that's the way life is for us, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. And in the evening it fades and withers. That's the way our lives are. It's like in the mornings we're, 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 we're young and we're vibrant and the dew is upon us and we're growing. But because of the heat of the day, all our lives, finally just by the end of the day, we're just worn out. And we've turned, we've, uh, we've just burned up and we're lying over on our side. That's, and again, what he's doing is he's contrasting the greatness of God and the, the frailty and the mortality and the corruptibility of, uh, of human beings. He talks about confession in the verses that follow that. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. See, sin is the cause of our frailty. Sin is the reason that we are mortal. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Nothing is hidden from God. Remember Psalm 139? Some of you are working on that uh, in, a, in a little exercise that I gave you. Uh, Psalm 130, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. There's nothing of which God is not aware regarding us. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The, the, the woes of life end in weariness. The years of our life are 70 or even by uh, reason of strength 80. Now remember Moses lived to be 120. 
Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? He says, look, we need to fear God. We need to reverence God. Don't explain away the things that are going on in our lives. Well, that's just part of life. You just get old. You just get worn out. you got to remember, that's because of sin. Isn't it? I, I tell you, it, it was the blessing of God that that happened. Can you imagine if man... If the man and the woman, our primeval parents, had been able to reach out their hand after having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they had been able to reach out their hand and eat from the tree of life, we would all be living eternally in sin. Verse 12, So teach us, so here's the supplication. Here's the petition part. So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Lord, help us to evaluate ourselves in the light of what You say in the Scriptures. Help us to live a holy life. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on Your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with Your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as You have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. We need to be joyful because of the faithfulness of God. Let Your work be shown to Your servants and Your glorious power to their children. In other words, display Your love by Your great deeds of power, Lord. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In other words, what he's saying here is he's saying, Lord, make the work that we do in pursuing the calling that you have for us of lasting value, of something that's good not only for this generation, but will be good for the generations that follow after us. Well, what are we to conclude from all of this? I point you to... Uh, uh, the conclusion and final applications, and let's just look at those briefly. Among the characteristics of a godly leader, there are two that stand out in these Bible passages that we've been talking about. The first is a love for God. You certainly see that in Moses. And the second is a love for God's people. As frustrating as God's people are sometimes, and I'm one of His people, and I can be real frustrating. In each of these passages that we've considered, it's, it's interesting that it begins with a recognition of and praise for the greatness of God, that adoration. And two of the prayers that we talked about here include petitions for forgiveness for God's people, and those petitions are based on the faithfulness of God to forgive when we confess our sins. Secondly, to be sure, there are times when neither God nor His people seem very lovable. I know that sounds like an awful thing to say, but there are times when we feel that way. When you know, when we are being disciplined, we think, "Well, boy, I, I, how could God really say He loves me if 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 He's putting me through all this?" And yet, again, the Book of Hebrews in chapter twelve says one of the marks of God's love is that He chastens His children; He disciplines them. And if He doesn't discipline, it's a mark that we are illegitimate children. We're not His children at all. He doesn't discipline those who aren't His children. 
any more than you as a parent would discipline some neighbor kid that was in your yard. You might yell at them and tell them to go home, but you're not going to go out there and administer any sort of discipline, but you're going to do that with your own children if you're a, if you're a good parent. But in times like that, you and I can become very stubborn, even openly defiant, and that results in God's discipline that may seem unfair, but of course it never is. In fact, such discipline, as I mentioned, is additional proof of our relationship to God and His great love for us even when we are wayward. And I would point you to that passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5-11 through 11, that elaborates on that. When the true believer in Christ openly disobeys God, not only is God offended by the sin, but also God's glory may be diminished in the eyes of other people. And that's, that's not a good thing. God is not going to share His glory with anyone. And then in Psalm 90, where the, the last passage that we looked at, uh, there are really three excellent petitions that you and I can pray for ourselves, and we can also pray this for other people. And I want to just, uh, just read these. And it's just sort of a modern-day way of saying what Moses was saying in those last few verses of Psalm 90. Uh, first of all, Lord, recognizing the brevity of life, help us to make each day count for You. What is it? Uh, Ephesians five sixteen says we're we're supposed to uh, take advantage of the the day, uh, do what we can while we can. Secondly, Lord, knowing that everything else is temporary, help us to learn to be satisfied with you. Uh, it was Asaph in Psalm seventy three verse twenty twenty five after just really going through some stuff said. Lord, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. I don't know that any of us could say that right now. Because we all have lots of desires. But in the final analysis, you remember in Second Peter, it says that uh, the day of the Lord is coming and uh, the whole thing is just going just to go up in a ball of flame. The earth and all this therein will be burned up. Well, there's several things that won't be burned up. God won't be burned up. God's Word won't be burned up. And neither will souls of men. So if you and I spend all of our time and all of our resources on things other than God and God's Word and the souls of other people, the lives of other people, it's all going to go up in smoke. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy the things that God's given us. After all, uh, in other places in the New Testament, uh, uh, God specifically says that He's given us all things to enjoy. But we should learn to hold those things with an open hand. And our satisfaction should not come, our, our deep satisfaction should not come in those things. Our deep satisfaction should come in knowing God and knowing that He knows us and that He holds us by the hand and He will never let us get away. And then third petition is, Lord, with a keen awareness that You don't need us. And He doesn't. If God were interested in efficiency, He'd send a couple of angels and the job would get done, just like it was at Sodom and Gomorrah. With a keen awareness that You don't need us, may You be pleased to use our efforts as we draw our strength from You to be a blessing to other people, including 
those who come after us, our posterity. Do your work as unto the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians fifteen, fifty-eight. Don't try to fill our lives with stuff because everything is going to perish. And recognize that God doesn't need us, but God is pleased to use us as we make ourselves available to Him to be a blessing to others including the generations that will follow. It was C.T. Studd, a great missionary, who penned these words, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.